بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته All praise and thanks are due solely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Traces peace, blessings and salutations upon our master and exemplar Nabi Muhammad صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم In the following interview I had the privilege of speaking with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouss the son of Sheikh Hanif Mouss of Weinberg, Cape Town. Sheikh Ibrahim memorized the Quran at the feet of his father, as well as the basics of the Arabic language and some Islamic studies. He then furthered his studies at other organizations locally and then graduated abroad at the Ma'had al-Fatah in Damascus, Syria, as well as the Al-Azhar University in Cairo, Egypt. Walillahi alhamd. Sheikh Ibrahim at present is the Imam of the Yusufiyah Masjid in Weinberg, Cape Town as well as a lecturer at the University of uh, Cape Town, UCT, in the Faculty of Arabic Studies, where he lectures on various uh, different aspects of the Arabic language. In this podcast, we find various levels of benefit from how to rear our children and how to create environments of deen within the home, as well as how to practice and improve our knowledge of the Arabic language. I hope and pray that this is of benefit and that you enjoy it and benefit from it as much as I did. Jazakumullah khairan for tuning in and don't forget to like and subscribe and share with those who can benefit. It will help uh, the message reach others and it will also help Isnad Academy as far as uh, gaining traction on our channel is concerned. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين ثم أما بعد رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل الأقدة من لساني يفقه كولي السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته أهلا وسهلا ومرحبا بكم فضيلة الشيخ إبراهيم واس عليكم السلام ورحمة الله وبركاته مولانا إرشاد and جزاكم الله خيرا inviting me and Barakala to have a conversation with you on maybe some topics. Some I must say, uh, Sheikh, and I don't know if I did already, but assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi to viewers and listeners and all those who are going to be joining us in this journey. Uh, it is, it is, wallahi, it is, it is a real uh, honor for me to have Sheikh as a guest in the podcast. I've been wanting to have Sheikh for a while, um, but uh, we haven't gotten around to it. So, Jazakumullah khairan uh, for joining and for being willing to to have this conversation, inshallah. Iyakum, Jazakumullah to you as well. It's a, it's a bit, it's not that easy, you know, to come and speak, especially some of the topics that will be spoken will maybe be some personal stuff. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not that easy. But Alhamdulillah, if uh, you know, if there's maybe some benefit to it, yeah, well, that yeah. should like so, sort of uh, overpower everything else. So Inshallah, we hope we hope it will. Allah yahfadikum, Sheikh. So we we have uh, we have a way of kind of softening the. How can I put it? Softening the the, the topic in, uh, with a with with a list of questions that's basically meant to be lighthearted and and quick. Uh, so nothing serious in that sense. Um, but we start off with with more sober questions, such as: Is there any particular surah that stands out for Sheikh that has a message currently in Sheikh's life? Uh, you know, I don't want to call I don't want to call it favorite surah because that's kind of problematic. But just something that stands out personally that you can relate to in some way or the other. 
Yeah, look, that's a, already it's a difficult that's a difficult question because the Quran, Alhamdulillah, the suwar are all beautiful and profound, and they all have uh, diverse messages. No. So uh, yeah, there are there are particular ayat that uh, perhaps I like to read, you know, um, a lot uh, by myself in salah and uh, occasions and stuff like that. No. So all the ayats for me that uh, perhaps uh, stands out that's just coming to my mind right now. Mm. Is uh, some of the verses in Surah Al-Fusilat where Allah speaks about istiqama. You know, when Allah says, "Inna al-ladina qalu Rabbuna Allah thumma istiqamu, tatanazzalu alayhim al-malaika." So I feel that uh, this issue of istiqama is something that I struggle with, and mm. I, 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 perhaps many people struggle with the same issue: mm. istiqama to actually just try and do your best. You know, Asana. and uh, I think this verse is kind of comforting. To know that uh, you know that Allah Taala is telling us that those who strive for istiqama, mm. there will be a lot of benefit to it. Mm. So it might be tough at times, it might be difficult, it might be challenging, but Allah Taala is reassuring us. Mm. You know, تتنزل عليهم Don't worry. You know, uh, the angels will be with you. They will come down. They will comfort you. Mm. And as some scholars had indicated, it, it happens at different stages of your life. No. Perhaps at the time when your ruh leaves, perhaps at the time when you are placed in the qabr, and so on and so forth. So yeah, yeah I think those ayat, I think of Surah Fussilat, are particularly beautiful for me because I think, like I said, it's uh, something that uh, keeps us going, man. That mm. We need to strive for istiqama. Mm. It is hard, but yet the results are quite good. I mean, the outcome is quite good, inshallah. I mean, I mean. And yeah, that is perhaps one of the one of the ayat. It's a, it's a very emotional ayah, uh, Sheikh, especially especially when one imagines one's, one's own uh, encounter with, with Malik al-Mawt. And, and, and just the, we have one of two choices there. On the one hand, we have the choice of having a very positive experience. And on the other hand, the negative experience isn't like slightly negative. It's like Horrible, horrific, and uh, it's it's a scary thought, subhanAllah, um, mm. because istiqama is like, a, it's a big commitment. Istiqama is, it, it's the biggest commitment. Mm. Uh, what did the scholars say? Al-istiqama falqa alf alf karama. Mm. Uh, you know, istiqama is better than a thousand, thousand miracles because mm. because it's such a precious commodity. Um, but absolutely, I, I can... I can uh, appreciate why Sheikh is, you know, very fond of that verse. Um, is the I, I just want to ask for my own benefit. Is there any is there any advice that Sheikh finds? What's the word? Effective, as far as uh, you know, just giving oneself a boost of istiqama. Uh, is there anything that that Sheikh has found that that sort of works for yourself or for others in experience or from the Quran and Sunnah, perhaps? Yeah, I think. Uh... Maybe one of the things, you know, that, that should uh, encourage us is the fact that, you know, you see people around you mm. and they have such tremendous achievements, you know, in terms mm. of what we can see in terms of their spiritual development mm. and stuff like that. Uh, and I think uh, role models, you know, people that live around you is very important because, mm. I mean, that sort of... Uh, tells you that you've got a journey and you have, uh, you know, you have to develop yourself still and no. hopefully also reach the levels that those people have reached. If we look at the scholars, for example, when we read in books, we read about ulama, we read about awliya, mm. we read about these great people. No. But uh, actually, in, in every time we find these people, mm. you know, it's not only in the books. 
you find like when you meet people, you know, yeah. you can see like, because I was in Turkey in January yeah. uh, of this year and I met some of my teachers that I oh, studied with 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And just sitting in their company once again, you know, um, getting those jewels and just getting that spiritual upliftment yes, and so yes, on. So uh, the game reminds you, you know, you still have a long way to go. And I think that is one of the things that sort of encourages you, you mm. know. You have to work hard. These no. people have worked hard all their lives. They've always tried, you know, to improve themselves. They've mm. never looked at themselves as being people that had reached, you know, yeah, their goals. Yeah, so I think that is maybe one of the things mm. uh, amongst many. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so one should be in the company of people. There's uh, some narration that actually says, you know, that if it comes to deen, you must look to those people that are above you. Mm. But when mm. it comes to dunya, you look at those people who are below you. Yeah, so in terms of your own worldly condition, there's always people that are worse off than you. Mm. But when it comes to your spiritual condition, no. you know, there's still a long way to go. You know, there's always people above you. Yes, I know. And I think that is one of the ways in which one tries then to work on one's own, mm. you know, uh, istiqama and is to compare yourself to those people that are way above you. And make dua and work hard, you know, also hopefully to reach those levels. I mean, Ya Rab, I mean, I mean, it was a, it was a profound moment um, when when the Prophet says mm. to this person, you know, uh, just could just say, just cool, mm. just say La ilaha illallah, thumma stakim. It's like one can't really that you can't imagine that in a real life situation. It's it's a sort of epic when the Prophet says it because it seems simple in its format, but it's profound in its application. May Allah grant us all istiqamah and, and uh, steadfastness in all the good things that we're supposed to have, Ya Rab. Um, well, I think that sort of covers the, the the surah pretty well, as well as even the hadith. We we, we covered a hadith as well. Um, and an ayah, subhanAllah, that was like three questions in one. Now we get into the more light-hearted stuff, Sheikh. Do you have a favorite type of food? Normally I ask Bukatirit, <laughs> but we're far from Ramadan now, so I don't know if it's going to help. Yeah, I don't actually. I mean, I uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I like everything. I Allah, mean, I, Allah. I don't have any specific uh, things, you know, but yeah. I eat. I'm quite easy. And uh, if I may say, I mean, I am of the daring type as well. Okay. I like to try new things. Mashallah. I like to. Well, there are certain so, things that I that I don't go near to. Like order the different thing on the menu, for example, and you go yeah, to the Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't like to do like the normal thing all mashallah. the time. So I, I suppose it's also when you see other cultures and you no. you know, you meet with other people and other cuisines and you introduce to these things. No. So you kind of, you know, that's you're always inquisitive like you I, know. I, I took a couple of I took a couple of video clips in Turkey mm. of the butchers. Because mm. in the front window of some of the butchers, I can't say all of them, but many of them that I saw they have all the, what we call afal, the, mm. the offal mm. of the animals, and like very cleaned and, you know, mm. on display. So I was thinking, wow, this stuff must be like a super delicacy here, subhanAllah. Yeah. It is quite interesting. Okay, tamam. And then, <coughs> excuse me. Sheikh, I think I know at least one of Sheikh's hobbies, but I'm not going to say, does Sheikh have a favorite <laughs> hobby? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do, actually. I, I, I do a bit of fishing. Allah, how is it? Right? Uh, so, so, yeah, <laughs> that is uh, one of the things that I enjoy doing in my spare time the little Mashallah. that I have of it um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a relaxing, relaxing it's a relaxing yeah. thing and I think it's because we are busy with mental work most of the time no. you know, not physical work but mm. you do me mentally you, you, you have to you know be on your guard all the time you're teaching you're mm. sitting with people you're giving talks you're lecturing whatever the case may be 
So I think, uh, you know, when you just break away from all of that no. and you're in, uh, you know, in touch with nature and uh, in front of the ocean and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's quite relaxing. No. You know, um, besides the fact that it's nice also if you catch Sona and then you catch something. No. And bring something home, actually, <laughs> which doesn't always happen. Uh, you know, the kids are already making fun of me sometimes yes, well, yeah. when you come with nothing. But I mean, it's, uh, we, we try to explain to them, but it's not, it's not all about, about that, just yeah. the catching. No. It's about nature and enjoying yourself. And stuff. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that is the only real hobby I have. Mashallah. And then, yeah, some other small things that I like to do. You know, I like to spend time with the kids and take them out and. We uh, like we like outdoors. I mean, generally speaking, yeah. Size fishing, the outdoors is uh, even my kids. You know, from small already, uh, we sort of training them right. at sleeping in a tent and going outside and nice. being, playing in, in you know in, in the sand and stuff like that should be normal. Nice, right? To normal because in our living conditions, we don't really have that. You know, mm. uh, times have changed so much yeah. uh, that the kids can't really play in the road. They can't no. really. We have a park right opposite our home, but I, I won't even allow my ch children to play there. Mm. So obviously we have to look now for other ways and means to, for them also to get in tune with nature and stuff. No. So we took them, you know, we take them on trips, we go camping and stuff like that. Yeah. Mashallah. No, that, mm. that's absolutely great. I, I actually find it to be a huge problem. Uh, I'm a father of a four-year-old and I see the world that, that I have to raise my, my, my daughter in and the challenges that they face. What disturbs me is the addiction to, to technology uh, in an antisocial way, I don't even know if that's the right term, antisocial. But you come to a family function or, you know, a community function, whether it be a khatat or a wedding or something of the sort, and then you see all the little kids sitting around the table phones on their and phones. Tabs or whatever, yeah. uh, we go to some houses and the kids literally, you don't know these kids in the house because they, they're locked up in their homes with phones and things. And I think it's so destructive because they, they end up lacking basic fundamental skills like greeting and things like that. So um, I, I think it's it's great to be in the outdoors a lot. I personally like certain things in the outdoors. I'm not an outdoor person. I don't do camping. <laughs> she can't find me You're missing out. You're missing out. Yeah, so no, I can't. I tried it a couple. Molna Khalil actually had me once at uh, Havakwas. Mm. This was, um, none of us were married yet. So it was three single guys at Havakwas. Um, I think it was over a New Year's period. And uh, uh, for me, it's just like, how can I sleep when these spiders around me? <laughs> <laughs> Subhanallah. Yeah, yeah. Sheikh, um, we, I want to speak a bit about Sheikh's journey as a student, but before that, is is there a moment that Sheikh can remember that stands out as one of your favorite moments as a student, whether it be in class or with a teacher, which is something that that always sits with you? Mm. Yeah, there's the. Uh, I think I suppose there's uh, many of uh, these moments, you know, that uh, we had experienced that were beautiful. Uh, I think. Uh, you know, one of the things that I actually thought about quite a lot um, recently when I was in Turkey as well, one of these teachers that ac that actually that I studied under uh, is one of the teachers that I met in Turkey now again. Uh, you know, on this one occasion when we finished a, a book, we were mm. reading with him, you know, a, a small uh, treatise uh, in Usul al-Fiqh. And when we were done, you know, it was such a, for him it was such a, a joyous occasion. For us it was like, Alhamdulillah, we finished the book. It's, it's quite nice and everything. But I don't think we had like that kind of excitement or, okay, we just finished the book. It's nice and whatever. But he like went inside and uh, he wanted to make like a celebration out of it. Eh? Yeah. Because for him, it was like, you know, this, this is the things that must be celebrated. Really. There's no other real celebrations, man. Celebrations is when you achieve something as far as your dean is concerned. 
You've at least gone through a kitab. You've done some things, and and he's he's of a very sort of you know his his conditions was very basic, mm. but he went inside and he came out with a plate of of grapes, mm. and this was you know he wanted to just present us something at least eat something and make it an occasion. Yeah, Rob. Seeing that you had finished this particular kitab, and I think this stuck with me. You know mm. that uh, we tend to celebrate all sorts of things, but the real things that ought to be celebrated. We we normally don't, or we overlook. And secondly, what is celebration? It doesn't have to be lavish, you know. It's got mm. nothing to do with what you have. Mm. It's the idea of no. feeling grateful, you know, to whatever you've achieved, etc. So this is perhaps one of the moments. Mm. So the the humbleness, also, you know, the humility of teachers, you know, towards students, mm. to have done something like this. Um, normally, I mean, you would also expect a teacher is quite sort of strict, and mm. they don't really interact maybe on that level. Mm. Alhamdulillah, we had teachers, you know, that were quite close to us, yeah. that, that would actually interact with us in this way, that would sit with us like mm. friends and speak and so on. So those are, that is perhaps, you know, one of the very, the many moments mm. that, that stands out, you know, moment of achievement, but also a moment of appreciation mm. and celebration at the same time. So, yeah, those, you know, the, those are some of the things mm. uh, that we face. So I met this teacher again in Turkey. When I was there now after 25 years, and actually it was very really emotional for me, mm. you know, to have thought that so many Can years. Can you ask who the teacher was? His name is uh, actually is one of the the teachers of some of the Hufad also here in Cape Town, mm. particularly Sheikh Hassan Abrams and Sheikh Abdullah Ahmad, um, Sheikh Uthman Abdul Hakim. Mm. He's actually a, a blind. He's a, mostly blind. I think his his vision is maybe five percent, if not less. But uh, yeah, very humble man, very simple, basic person, but with so much wisdom, you know, mm. so much kindness and so much uh, generosity. Even mm. though the little he has, he's so generous in giving, you know, and affording others whatever he can. So I think it was a yeah, it was a quite a, a eye-opening Mashallah. visit, you know, this time around, thinking about all these things that we had. So Sheikh Riyad also knows him well. Mm. Because we studied together with him, you know, some books we read under him and so on. No. No, so I, I actually want to ask about Sheikh's journey as a student because of my experience now recently in, in, in Turkey for the first time interacting with uh, the uh, Syrian ulama on, on, a, on a large scale. I mean, we, we've met Syrian ulama before and we've interacted with them, but now some of the senior scholars we met and we, we could practically follow them around for these few uh days which were precious days um, and for, I, I thought about Sheikh a lot during that journey because not only did we meet some of Sheikh's colleagues who studied with the Sheikh and so on but it was also just a, uh, a matter of this is what Sheikh Ibrahim was experienced during his days as a student like uh, throughout and the Sheikh was so blessed in that regard because by the time I reached I think my fourth year or something of the sort then the Syria the Syrian war really broke out and things became very complicated after that. Um, so I felt, I always felt like I missed out, you know, and, and that opportunity would sort of never, um, you know, present itself. But Alhamdulillah, uh, this particular trip where we could go and sit at the feet of many um, amazing scholars, subhanAllah. But what what I really appreciated was the simplicity. Mm. Um, that it's not like, I don't know, for us, sometimes we imagine the, the awliya, as as doing profound things all the time, like flying mm. around and making millions mm. of, of subhanallahs. But essentially what their lives consist of is they, they abstain from haram. That's very clear. 
because they surround themselves with khair from the morning till the night. Mm. And it's just automatic. Like they'd wake up, then it's masjid. After that, then they would go sit with the, with, with the first dars of the day. After that is the second dars of the day. Then they're going to go lecture somewhere there. Then the night they'll attend a dhikr somewhere. Uh, then they'll spend some time with their family, etc. Then they'll write a bit. So they're basically, they're basically living from, from one moment with Allah to another moment with Allah in a very simple manner. Um, nothing lavish, nothing... Uh, I mean, of course, uh, they have these secrets with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. There's no doubt about that. But from what one can, what, from what one can see, it's not impossible to attain. It's just a matter of, like Sheikh said, you know, this istiqama. They just do it all the time. It's their identity. It's their life. It's it's who they are. They live, eat, breathe, deen. It, it just comes naturally. They surround themselves with with people who are of like-minded nature or students. Uh, this one journey, and I'm going to hand over to Sheikh in a moment. We took with uh, Sheikh Muhammad Ali Masoud, uh, also a Syrian scholar. He published a couple of books, and mashallah, really good scholar. Um, you can you can hear from from just his his interaction with us. He knows he knows uh, he knows sciences to to a, a deep degree, and he also knows a lot of sciences. And this journey, we went to Bursa, and um, some of the brothers were tired and so on. And all of a sudden, one person started making salawat. And then next thing you know, another person is singing Qasida Burda. The next thing you know, then he says, okay, right, now you must bacha some Quran. Okay, then now you must give us some nasiha. Yeah. And that just became the journey. And um, it just came so naturally to them that, you know, uh, there's no effort involved and so on. So I felt uh, very blessed to have experienced something of that nature. And I can only imagine what Sheikh uh, had experienced. But I would love to know, and I'm sure our viewers and listeners would love to know, how exactly did Sheikh's journey as a student pan out? Like from the from the early days, I'm sure Sheikh was a student of Sheikh's father and so on. To yeah, maybe find yeah. ourselves today. Yeah, look, it's uh, yeah. I was uh, in a sense. I think we were blessed. You know that uh, our home um, was our first introduction. No. You know to many things. Uh, so my father has always been a Quran teacher, a Hif teacher uh, since I can remember. Mm. Since I, you know, opened my eyes, I've seen students in my father's house, mm. house coming to memorize the Quran. So uh, we kind of grew up, you know, with that vibe. People reciting all around you mm. all the time. And it's quite strange that uh, you, how you pick up things, man. Even as a kid, mm. you would like, because you listen to ayat, you listen to people reciting. By the time when you actually learn those ayat yourself, it's almost like, but I know this already. Mm. You know, where mm. did I hear it? Or where did it come from, you know? But it's obvious that you, you've been exposed to it, even mm. if it's in a passive way. Sure. You know, even if it's in a passive way. So I was fortunate in that sense, you know, myself and my siblings. that My father was always busy teaching people mm. Quran. And then also the second thing, which I think I picked up from very small, was the Arabic language, which is maybe more what I would like to speak about because... No. I feel a lot of students, they struggle with this, you know, they no. struggle in our environment with regards to Arabic and stuff. So the first thing I would like to say is that I think like, you know, we, you, you can sort of create an environment. Man. I mm. mean, we live in a non-Muslim country. Mm. We live in a place where Arabic is not spoken really. But I grew up sort of uh, in an environment where I heard the Quran all the time. And I also heard Arabic all the time because mm. my father is a very serious student of Arabic, studied uh, for many years and, uh, uh, Imam Ismail Johnston also studied under Sheikh Ismail Faqir, uh, Sheikh Amin Faqir, sorry, Sheikh Muhammad Amin Faqir, also studied under Sheikh Muhammad Nadim, Nadim Muhammad, and and others. Uh, 
So he was always a very serious student, you know, of, of, of Arabic. And and I remember even as a child, my father used to always speak Arabic, you know, mm. to people that come there. Mm. He used to like take opportunity, seize the opportunity. Anybody that he knows can converse with him. No. You try at least to speak with him, even mm. if it's a few sentences. Mm. And again, it's strange how we picked up things, you know, just because of listening to some of those things that get repeated. Albeit, albeit maybe very basic stuff. Mm. Asking how you are, didn't see you for a long time or... You know, just basic things. No. But it, we actually picked up those things. Uh, and then one of the other things that my father also, you know, um, exposed us to sort of in a passive way is he would al always play cassettes. Right. So when we were driving, I grew up basically with the voice of Sheikh Abdul Hamid Kishk. SubhanAllah. Who was one of the very powerful orators no. of Egypt. And all his lectures, my father used to listen to all his lectures all the time. Aji. You know. And I think this is an important point to make, you know, that uh, you can create some environment for yourself mm. if you put in enough effort, mm. you know, within your own uh, limitations. And and who knows? I mean, that kind of uh, creation of that environment, it may lead to a lot of things afterwards. It mm. may lead to bigger dreams or bigger aspirations, you know, but it all starts small, mm. but it can lead you down a journey that would become maybe very profound later on. And uh, because we were exposed to these things, it, uh, it just seems that every step of the way, you know, wherever I went afterwards, uh, it, things was just easy. It just fell Ajib. in place, you know, because of this kind of introduction to the sciences, the introduction, introduction to Arabic no. and Quran Jamil. and fiqh maybe. Basic stuff that I've heard, you know, my father speak. So I think parents, they play a massive role, you know, in the way they are going to sort of steer their own children. Uh, or direct their children because you can see like a child normally just want to imitate what parents do no. that's all that it is no. if a parent is a mechanic the child is going to play with the spanners all day yeah. that is normal no. you know in our case we heard Quran all day no. so it was natural that we wanted to also do that you know um, so I think that was my start and as I said I think I'm uh, always grateful that I was fortunate you know to have had such a start mm. because everywhere else things was, was pretty easy for me in the sense of adapting and and things like that. Jimmy. So uh, so I learned by my father uh, officially. I, I, like I said, that was passive knowledge. Did I? Just listening, just observing and so on without formally learning mm. uh, with him. I think I probably started learning with him. Um, besides Quran, no, Quran we started all from a young age mm. to read and then to memorize. But actually uh, Arabic per se, when did I actually start Arabic with him? Uh, I must have been probably in my teens, you know, probably 13, 14, there around, no. where I first started to officially learn Arabic with my father. And he actually, uh, I think it was actually me, it was actually uh, myself that asked my father mm. if it's possible, you know, for me to Ashallah. read to him some stuff because mm. I feel I want to do some formal studies in, right. in Arabic and so on. And he introduced me, my first text that I uh, read with him was a book that was written by Sheikh Ismail Hanif. Okay. And it's a book on Arabic grammar. It's called Durus uh, Al-Nahawiyya. No, Al-Qawaid Al-Nahawiyya, sorry. Al-Qawaid Al-Nahawiyya li tadris al-lughughati al-Arabiyya. And this uh, Sheikh Ismail Hanif was a real Rahim genius. Allah. You know, he was way ahead of his time. So he wrote this, uh, this manual for Arabic uh, grammar and he translated it into Holland's Afrikaans. Mm. You know, so you have the Arabic phrases. And next to it, all the translations in Afrikaans, but mm. written in Arabic script. Mm. So I was exposed to this text and I started reading, you know. 
And it was interesting. I started to read the the, the, the Hollands Afrikaans no, as well. No. Because you, you pick up that skill as well. Right. Besides learning the, the Nahu and all of that. I do. And alongside that, I think I was also reading the famous book of uh, Dr. Fa Abdul Rahim of uh, Medina, the Medina syllabus, you know, it's called uh, the Rusul Lughatil Arabiya, that they do in Medina, students that are going there for the first time, mm. they get exposed to that book. So I think I was doing that alongside the Nahu Kitab. Okay. And I also remember my father saying to me right at the beginning, you have to memorize all the scales. And he gave me like all these papers yeah. and... You have to just memorize it. Don't ask me now what it means or anything like that. Just right. sort of put it in your head, you know. And I think from there, I just sort of uh, gained a great love for the language, you know, because I, that sort of clicked, man, for me that this is something that I would really like to pursue. Mm. Also knowing now that Quran is the other thing that I'm doing. So the Arabic and the Quran obviously is going to go together. No. Be able to understand a bit better and so on. Um and I think I just had this desire, you know, to to learn the language because I always, when I heard my father like speak to others, mm. it was fascinating mm. for me to hear him speak in another language and especially the Arabic language. And I always just wanted to do that, you know. Mm. I just wanted to speak the way that he can speak and communicate to people and stuff like that. And uh, I've then just taken always, you know, opportunities after that to uh, to expose myself and just to speak to people and no. like when I used to see Egyptians whatever I would just run to them and just introduce myself I mean it's a strange thing I mean I wouldn't normally do that no. but it's because of the language you know that actually uh, sort of uh, drew me towards that uh, approach right. I remember going to people and they're like you know who are you and I, I like said my name is Anna Ibrahim and uh. this little sentences because yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say something I do. and I wanted them to say something back and if I didn't understand, I would ask and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think that is uh, the beginnings, you know. SubhanAllah. Which, which, which is very good, alhamdulillah. No, that's profound. I, I like the, the idea of the environment. Uh, it's something that I strive to do. Um, how much I get it right, Allah knows best. But uh, I, th I think it's amazing. The one the one night we were coming home from um, a dhikr that we attended in, 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 in uh, Turkey, uh, I think it was Sheikh Khalid Khorsa's dhikr uh, um, gathering. But we were there as as guests. We were there as, not guests, to to be part of the, you know, the core of the dhikr, but just to visit the scholars and to see what the Syrian dhikrs were like and so on. And then we were walking home and it was past 12, maybe past 1 in the morning. And then this uh, small boy, I, at the time I couldn't, I couldn't judge what his age was because he just, <laughs> he just came across as very mature even though he looked very young, like very young. And then he approached Sheikh Muhammad Ali Mas'ud, who's also a Syrian scholar, but they spoke to each other in Turkish. So he assumed he was Turkish mm. and vice versa. And then, you know, he starts asking, oh, so where you from? And he says, I'm in Syria. And he says, I know I'm in Syria. And then they started speaking. The boy then invited us into the house to have some tea mm. and to come listen to some salawat, like serious. Like he, he was, he was, you know, he was like, no, you have to. He's, we were standing right at his house. Um, he had the keys of his house, unlocked the door and so on. And we came inside and his father was there. His father spoke like only Amiya could barely understand what his father was saying. But the boy himself, he spoke good. And then I could see his father's got kitabs on the on the shelf. His father's not an alim. But mm. the, the shelf is full of kitabs, but it's, it's like religious books. I mean, you can see some of the titles and so on. And... Um, you can see that it's a home of dhikr mm. because it's just certain signs, maybe subha is lying around or they've got like a big subha that's like a, mm. uh, 
decoration, but you know, it, it's a statement. Uh, the dress code of everybody, the fact that the boy was coming from a decode by himself at night. So you can see that those seeds were planted and yeah, the result is we came to find out this boy is 12 years old, but he was uh, practically um, a fully a fully mature adult in our society yeah. Yeah. in the way he was acting. Um, and of course, you could see his love for Allah and his Rasul Sallallahu So I think that is amazing. And I, I hope inshallah that we can all aspire to that and take note of that lesson because the environment uh, outside of the home are bad enough. At least the home needs to kind of compensate for that mm. so we can at least keep a steady balance, inshallah. So that was Sheikh's informal years of study with Sheikh's father, Hafidahullah And then that that commenced into formal studies as well. How mm. long did that last for Sheikh? Yeah, so I, uh, when I uh, matriculated, um, I decided obviously long ago before matriculation, yeah. That I probably wanted to formally pursue Islamic studies mm. um, because I I had already been in that environment. This was the thing that I was, you know, that I was really enjoying seeing my father doing whatever he was doing. Yeah. So I, I suppose it was always just, you know, going to be like that. Mm. There was no other route for me that mm. I would have taken. And so when I matriculated, I then uh, asked my father, you know, what should I do now? I obviously want to study overseas. Mm. Because that is, in our minds, that was always the best option. Right, yes. Because you want to be in an environment <laughs> of, again, the Arabic language and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, I applied. In fact, I applied to Medina quite a few times. Okay. But I wasn't accepted. For whatever reason, I wasn't accepted. No. Um, in fact, I even went for interviews. People came here from Saudi Arabia, interviewed me, and still I wasn't accepted. Ajeeb. So anyway, I then enrolled at uh, the Darul Arqam Islamic Institute. Mm. Um, which at the time was, I think, one of the sort of popular schools that people went to to do Arabic and Islamic studies, like formal uh, Islamic studies on a tertiary level. So it was either there or it was ICOSA. That okay. was the two options at the time. There wasn't much where, other. Where was Darul Arkham? So Darul Arkham was based at the Muslim Judicial Council offices, okay. where it is now in Cashel Avenue. So the entire top section was Darul Arkham. Okay, so we studied over there. I mean, I enrolled over there after matric. And Alhamdulillah, I think I had a, a wonderful group of teachers, you know, that again were very passionate about the language. In fact, it stood out at the time that the Darul Arkham Institute was much stronger than ICOSA in terms of the Arabic. Okay. You know, ICOSA stood out in the sense that they were more like into um, English uh, writing and academic right. writing and things like that. Tamam. Whereas we didn't do much of that, but our Arabic was quite was quite strong. Because our teachers, you know, they, they sort of uh, wanted us to get immersed in the language. Right. Which I feel it's a, another good thing to tell students, you know, Absolutely. that uh, you can actually achieve a lot if you immerse yourself. Even in an environment where there isn't like a formal environment, you can sort of create that for yourself. Mm. So in this school, for example, just to, to, to give you an idea how things work in the school at Darul Arqam. So firstly, the subject matter. Most of the subjects were subjects related to Arabic in the okay. first, I think, first one and a half years. Tama. Mostly Arabic. So we had Arabic writing, Arabic uh, dictation. You had Nahu, you had Sarf, you had um, Nusus, which was this text, you know, random text that was right. chosen. We had Mufradat, a special subject just for vocabulary. Ajin. You had Muhadatha, where you had to speak. Um, you know, we had a, a range of subjects which was all geared 
towards strengthening your Arabic. So you were listening to Arabic, you were speaking Arabic, you were reading Arabic all the time. And alhamdulillah, I mean, the students, I think, that came out of Dal Arqam in, in those formative years, they came, they came out quite quite good, you mm. know, in terms of the language mm. for people that studied locally. Of course. You know, uh, that weren't exposed. And I remember, again, I remember, you know, when people came from overseas, uh, there were a lot of these Saudi uh, scholars that used to come and they used to run these uh, workshops, which they themselves sponsor, of course, and mm. they come and they just, you know, do some programs. And we used to look forward because now we had the time now to opportunity to exhibit our language, you know, so you right. could like speak to them, you can ask right. them questions, you can hear to their responses. And, and this is how you obviously improve yourself, yeah. you know. And Sheikh uh, Rafan Abrams, I remember him saying at one stage, you know, he was impressing upon us so much that Arabic should be spoken. Nothing else should be spoken, you know. When you walk in here in the morning, I don't want to hear English. I don't want mm. to hear Afrikaans. You just speak Arabic. And at one stage, he was actually, uh, you know, implementing some penalty system. Like when you speak anything besides Arabic, you have to pay him like 50 cents or whatever the case may be. <laughs> you know, because just to sort of discourage you. Right. Uh, and if you t- ask him a question, for example, in class, he wouldn't listen to you unless you ask it in Arabic. Whether you're going to stutter, you're going to ask someone else how to say it, uh. he doesn't care. But you come back and you ask me in Arabic. So I think these are all ways and means that we have to like sort of improvise on. Right. Because we're not in that environment. Yes where it's natural mm. to speak Arabic or to see Arabic. So I think that was also a very good introduction for me. Mm. You know, um, I mean, there's the first time, for example, that I got introduced to the Ajrumiya. I mean, I never knew anything about the Ajrumiya before that. Although my father, he knew about the Ajrumiya. He studied the Ajrumiya with his, some of his teachers mm. as well. But I never, I was never exposed to the Ajrumiya really, except when I came to, to Darul Arqam. I think it was uh, Sheikh Shahid Isa or one of those teachers that, insisted that we memorize some of it and we understand the qawaid in there and so on. So that lasted about one and a half years for me. And in that time, obviously, as I said, I applied, but I wasn't accepted anyway. Mm. And then something strange happened. Uh, my father and our whole family, in fact, we went for Hajj in 96. Now, again, this journey to Hajj for me, I was so excited. Because mm. here was going to be my first chance ever where I'm going to have the opportunity just to use my Arabic mm. to the fullest. Because no. now there's going to be shopkeepers, there's going to be the airport, there's going to be people that I'm going to have to see or, or, or deal with. Or Because I was helping my father with arrangements and stuff because I was the only male, you know. It was my mother right. and my sisters and my brother was quite young. So I was looking forward for this and it was it was quite a, it was quite a nice, you know, opportunity for me because uh, I just thought to myself, I'm going to speak all the Arabic that I know. Yeah. You know, although it was very little, but I mean, I wanted to just make use of all the yeah. Arabic. And uh, my father met someone in uh, Saudi Arabia for, on that year that was from Syria. Right. You know, and this man was a extremely, what appeared to be an extremely salih person. He was sitting outside the haram, in fact. Uh, he wasn't living in a hotel. He, he, he refused to stay in a hotel. He was sitting there because he was saying that, you know, he doesn't want to waste time coming and going to the haram. He just wants to be in the haram all the Actually, time. So it's like making permanent i'atikaf there for the, the whole two months before hajj. I don't know what how he got it right in terms of the official stuff and so on. No. But he was sitting there outside, outside of the gates of the haram, like on the mataf on the outside, uh, with his bags and stuff like that. Permanently, he would just sit there. You know, yes, he wouldn't move from that spot. Go inside to make tawaf, maybe make salah and come back out. So my father was very impressed with this man. He befriended him, started to speak to him and so on. Then he said he's from Syria and so on. 
And he somehow or the other then said to, to this man, you know, that uh, my son, he also wants to study what is the oppo- what opportunities are there and so on. And he said to my father, look, you must just come there. I mean, there, there's lots of opportunities. Mm. You don't have to worry. There's lots of schools, there's whatever. Then we came back from Hajj. And then my father said to me, you know, why don't you try to maybe go to Syria? Mm. You, you applied Medina and so on. Because Medina was like, I think most students wanted to be in Medina. Yeah. Because of the perks, man, that right, comes with it. Right, right. You're Hajj, you can go Umrah, you no. can, you're in the Holy Lands exactly, and so on. Yes. And, and it's easy in terms of your living conditions. No. They sponsor everything, they pay you to come home and all this. So I think that was attractive for everyone mm. to, 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 to go and study there. But then my father said, look, I said to my father, okay, I'm going to find out. And I started making inquiries. And there was only about, I think, three students there at the time from South Africa. In, in Syria? In Syria, oh, wow. to studying there. So I went to them and I asked them, you know, what is... So they said, look, you have to apply and so on. But you can also just travel along and just come and see, man. You know, why don't you... This is what was one of the suggestions that came out. Why don't you come and with us, uh, you know, just to explore first. Right. And see what schools there are and see the system, see maybe what uh, what is it that you want to do and so on. And then take it from there, you know. And that's what I did. I actually then got some money together, some sponsorships from, from some families and some other means that I that I managed. And I left, you know. And and my journey was actually going to be just an exploratory journey, not mm. not to stay there. But I think when I came there and I saw the potential, you know, I saw the amount of schools and the amount of activity. And, you know, they're just that vibe and yeah. students and books, you know, <laughs> all these things just get you excited. And it's like it's everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's in it's your face. Everyone. Yeah. Everybody speaking Arabic and the students are all over the place and they introduced me to this college and to this college. And it was it was just overwhelming. And I thought to myself, I have to get myself in somewhere, you know. Hajim. And uh, I didn't want to go back home. In fact, I want to, my idea was like, I want to stay now. I mean, I, I must just get away to stay here now. And then I scouted around, but I was a bit late already because the school had started already yeah. and I couldn't really enter any of the Islamic uh, colleges, so to mm. say. But then I met a Somali brother, uh, Shah Abdurrahman, who then took me to a language school. So this language school was concentrating only on teaching foreigners. Uh-huh. And so they were like accepting people even like later than other schools. Right. So I went there and they said, look, we can only accept you on one condition that we have to test you first. Oh. Because our initial Arabic is actually full. But if you are like good enough, we can maybe place you in at either intermediate or advanced, depending on, you know, what your level your ability is. Now. And I said, okay, I, I'm willing to take a test, you know, what kind of test. I said, no, it'll just be oral test, you know, when do you want to take it? So I said, well, whenever, you know. So they said, okay, can we do it now? So I said, yeah, why not, you know? And this, uh, it was actually a woman. And this woman started, uh, and I was speaking in Arabic all the time. Right. But I was stuttering, of course, because it's, I mean, it's the first time that I'm like, right, right, now right. formally coming to a school like this and whatever. And also, Sheikh didn't know it's a test. Yeah, I didn't know what they're <laughs> going to ask me and stuff. But then they asked me like a couple of stuff. I had to read some sentences in Arabic and, you know, they asked me some basic stuff, you know, Nahu right. and stuff, which I knew Fortunately, because of a little bit of background that I had with my father and Darul Arkham, I knew some Nahu and stuff like that. And this woman then, she was seemingly like, you know, quite impressed to know that I, because she asked me in South Africa, do you speak Arabic? So I said, no, we don't speak Arabic. (laughs) We speak English and Afrikaans and so on. So where did you learn Arabic? So I said, I studied with my father a bit and some colleges there. Mm. And then she said to me, okay, it's fine. You can can come into our school. Uh, You can register. And out of the three levels, they placed me on the highest level. They placed oh, wow. me on the advanced level. So I actually spent only one year there. 
okay. instead of the three years that students, students normally spend. And I was so excited. I phoned my father. I said, you know, the good news is that I'm staying. I'm not coming home straight yeah. away because I got entrance somewhere. Uh, I just hope that uh, I'm going to be able to stay in terms of finances and stuff yeah. like that. So he said, don't worry. Things will, we will try to, 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 to sort things out and whatever. And Alhamdulillah, that was my sort of introduction, you know, to Syria. Mm. How old is she at the time? I must have been probably about 20. Unmarried. Yeah, that was unmarried because that was just after I did my matric and after a few years at Darul Arqam. Must have been about 20, yeah. So I then started with uh, this college and Alhamdulillah, it was a very good introduction to Syria because now that I was only doing Arabic and my college was only like from 9 in the morning till 12, I had so much free time and so I could now sort of go around and mm. go and explore other schools mm. and the masajid. You know, Syria was at the time just a, a hub of knowledge, man. You can like just go into any masjid, there would be some halqa there. SubhanAllah. There would be a teacher teaching like a hadith book or a tafsir book, whatever, you know. And you can just go buy a book and go sit there. Nobody's going to yeah. ask you anything, you know. Uh, there's no formalities about these things, mm. so to say. And Alhamdulillah, I think that was a good year for me because I could sort of look around and I could make up my mind on what I wanted to do the next year. No. Which college, you know, I mm. could now compare colleges as well. Right. Which one offers what I want to do? Which which one has Shafi versus Hanafi for example? Right. Uh, which one's uh, Arabic base is stronger than others and so on and so forth. So that exploratory year became like a very good year for me because it was like a preparation for me for the next year. Damn. And I think from there, Alhamdulillah, you know, everything sort of just uh, spiraled, mm. you know. So I came home after that one year and I went back and I registered and I was off, you know, to, uh, busy with Islamic studies now and Arabic and all of that. It's a couple of other things that happened along the way that I changed colleges again and mm. stuff like that. Mm. But I don't know, maybe we can what speak was, about what that. Was the, what was the number one thing that kind of stood out as far as Syria's methodology with, with teaching Arabic? I mean, the Arabs now for all intents and purposes, not Syrians. Um, I'm asking this because... I am aware that there's a difference mm. between like the Indo-Pak method that I was more exposed to and then the, the Arab method, but I'm not aware of exactly what those differences are. Mm. I just know the tables is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for Sheikh, what's like the outstanding features um, that makes, you know, the sort of pedagogy, what was different? Yeah, look, I think uh, the Syrians, <laughs> first of all, um, in terms of the methodology in teaching Arabic, is, is one that, uh, number one, they, they want you to become extremely strong and proficient in Arabic grammar, first of all, right? So one of the things that like stood out for me is the amount of emphasis that they put on I'arab. So I'arab, as you know, is of course the analysis of every word mm. in a sentence. You know, what, what position does that word hold in a sentence? Mm. And that was strange, like some, some, you know, years that I entered the class, the teacher would come on Thursday and he would just say, for tomorrow you must i'rab the surah. Just randomly like that, you know, mm. you must like take a whole surah of the Quran and it was just like i'rab every word in that surah. Right. So you like, you know, you've never done this really formally, but this is what they, they very much into Arabic grammar, first of all. So they want you to memorize and to understand the grammar well. Right. Right. Uh, that's the one thing. So the Arab plays a very big role. They want you to analyze everything. And I think that is good in a sense because it, it makes you sort of analytical, man. You want to analyze everything. You want to think about everything. Mm. So when you see a word, when you see a sentence, it bothers you mm. if you really, if you don't know why is there a Dhamma, why is there a Fatha, no. why is there a Kasra, you know, what's the reason? So you're not going to just read something without thinking about it. Right. So that's point number one. The other thing that I feel they are 
quite strong in is the implementation of that. So, so what they would do is that you formally do the qawaid, you do the sarf, and yes, the scales, it's also there, but they, they may not do it as crudely right. as the other system no. does it, you know. Like my father also followed the crude system, right. you know, like here's the pages, you memorize the 10 scales and uh, you come back once you know it. Yeah. Whether you understand it or not, I've got nothing to do with that. Uh, right. So, so, the, stu- so, so the, the Syrian or the Arab method is to teach you those things, but in a more subtle way. So right. obviously the scales will be explained to you one after the other, you know, starting with the... Uh, Mujarrad, then the Mazid, and what is the differences and what's the meaning differences between the scale number two. and But they do it in a very sort of, uh, I would say, not in a crude way, man. They do it like in a very slow, systematic uh-huh. way, one after the other, which is nice. But the implementation, I think that is where students uh, locally also have to pay attention to. Uh, because I, I myself fall into this trap very often that I, you can teach Nahu, you know. And it's nice to know Nahu. And, and this was my experience with Ipsa, for example. So I taught the Arabic and stuff like that. So my students would know like Nahu. They mm. would be able to tell you what's a fa'il, what's a mubtada, what's a khabar, what's tamyiz, what is hal, all these things. They knew that from the t- uh, top of the heads. But when you actually take that knowledge and you read a book, man, mm. how does that affect that now? Of course. So if you don't have that kind of implementation, then all that knowledge that you have is just theory and it's nice to know it, but the mm. benefit is very minimal. No. And that's the problem we have with some teachers of Arabic, including myself, because I sometimes get like carried away just with nahu, 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 without implementing the hmm. rules. Now, if you look at a person like Sheikh Muhammad Amin Fakir, I mean, he had already long, you know, a long time ago, he had realized the importance of implementation more than just memorizing of laws. Hmm. So his system was always, you do, and I think this was also the system of Iran and others, you do a minimal amount of laws hmm. that will allow you to at least read, Thereafter, you read as much as possible, mm. right? You analyze and you read. And and I think also the reading, it's one thing just to read, but it's another thing to read for someone that can rectify you. No, no. And I think that plays also a... Did, did you get an opportunity for that? In, in... Yes, absolutely. Okay. In fact, they, they impress uh, on students to to read and so that they can rectify you. Mm. And I find this, I mean, even in hadith, you know, like in hadith, you have the method of either reading to the sheikh the sheikh reading to you. Mm. So this whole discussion, which one is better and so mm. on. So in terms of Arabic, certainly they would want you to read all the time mm. so that they can obviously listen to your reading, rectify your grammar, tell you where you're going wrong mm. so that next time you see a sentence or a word that is similar to that, you won't make the same mistake. Mm. So I think that's also important um, that we need to uh, do implementation of the Nahu and Sarf more than just studying the laws. And then the other issue of Nahu is... Um, I mean, I've got a, just a love for Nahu, generally speaking, right? So I like to read books and I, I've studied quite a lot of books in Nahu. So Nahu also can become like just a a subject that is that, that is nice to study, mm. but the benefits are very minimal. Mm. So you get people maybe that's interested in that, you mm. know, and you can teach them that. Mm. But I think for the sort of average student that are wanting to study Deen and mm. wanting to read text, I mean, we shouldn't teach them a book such as the books that we've studied. Like, I mean, I, I teach at the moment to some students, but they are like sort of, uh, I would say, some of them are some ad, uh, like advanced students. Mm. So I teach them a book by Ibn Hisham, for example, mm. Al-Ansari. I mean, there's so much ikhtilaf in that book sometimes. Mm. It's like, think like, it's so confusing, you know, the Basri Yun say this, the Kufi Yun say this. Right. You know, Al-Kisai say this, and uh, Al-Farisi say something else, and so on and so forth. So that type of knowledge is nice and everything, but, I don't think for all students, man. No. Not all students should venture into that. No. You know, that should maybe be somebody that has... For, for most people, it's, it's a means to an objective. Yeah. And for the few who are really passionate about it, it's a... It's a yes, thing. correct. Correct. 
Hmm. Uh, but I mean, in Syria, for example, they don't make that distinction either because for them, you must learn everything. Right. There's no such thing as just a means to an end. You have to learn all the nahu. You know. Right. So just a quick, I mean, I'll tell you what, what system they follow in terms of books that they read. Tamam. Right. Strange enough, the Ajrumiya is not found in Syria. Oh, wow. Or it's found very little, you know. In all the colleges that I studied formerly, it wasn't taught, right? You may find private teachers teaching it, but the Ajrumiya didn't have like such a big ranking right. uh, in, in Syria. Well, it's a, it's a very basic text anyway. Mm. It just introduces you to some of the rules of Nahu. Uh, so they would have, uh, there's a book that they have as an introduction, which is called Ad-Durusun Nahawiyya. They're very fond of this book. Mm. It's a three-volume book, one, two, and three. And each uh, volume is actually the same material. So one is the same as two and three, but they just expand every time, make it a bit more 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 detailed. Mm. So two is more detailed than one. No. Three is more detailed than two. But it's the same context. Right. The same abuab, the same. Uh, so this book was written like sort of in the early 1900s in Egypt. It's an Egyptian group of scholars that wrote this book. And uh, I don't know, they, they just like this book. So we were introduced to that first. Then from there, you jump straight into Ibn Hisham, which is like a massive jump. Mm. I mean, I must tell you, once you come to Ibn Hisham, like from that level, it's like you're lost. It's like it's a different world altogether, <laughs> you know. And then even Ibn Hisham has got levels, you know. It's got different books that that you start off with and that you end off with. Sure. So they start with Qatrun Nada, for example. Mm. Or if not Qatrun Nada, Shudur al-Dhahab, because those two are very close to each other. And then after that, they force you to read the Al-Fiyah, mm. you know. And in certain colleges, you must even memorize the whole Al-Fiyah. Sure. And where the Al-Fiyah goes, the Sharh of Ibn Aqil, for example. Or the Sharh of Ibn Hisham on the Al-Fiyah, which is called Awdah al-Masalik. And then from there, they will push you on to one of the great books of Ibn Hisham, which is the Mughni Labib, which is like the top notch. I mean, that is like the professors, you know, that mm. if you come like really at a extremely high level, you, you are able to read Mughni Labib. So so the system is like you have to go through all this stuff. But sure. I mean, as a student, you, you like feel like it's, it's, it's daunting, it's overwhelming, mm. like all these. I mean, I wrote certain exams that I was sitting like up at night and thinking, what, what is all these things, you know? <laughs> and, and sometimes you rebel also. You think like, well, how is these, these things going to benefit me, you know? Right. But at the same time, you, there is a kind of a, it's a strange thing, man. It's like a love-hate relationship. So at the same time, you, you get some joy out of it. If you, no. if you learn, if, if you understand something that you didn't understand before. Right. Wow, look at this ikhtilaf. Or maybe a Quran ayah, you know, that has a different approach now, a different no. view, or different wajah that you can. Mm. Because the qiraat, as you know, also plays a big role. Different qiraat means different ways of Arabic and so on and so forth. So the Syrians, I think they are, quite good at that you know they, they're quite good at number one strengthening your nahu and sort that mm. you must like master and secondly you know putting that into practice you have to read you have to produce and so on mm. uh, the spoken part of Arabic I think that is also another concern mm. for a lot of students mm. again we, we don't live in an environment where Arabic is spoken mm. but that does not mean you can't create your own environment no. that's what I said at the, at the beginning you know right. you shouldn't like make excuse man to say well Nobody speaks Arabic, so I can't really progress. Right. No, you should then go look for people or create your own circle where you can speak Arabic, you know? No. Because that is how, how it should be done. I mean, that is what some of us did and it worked at the time and it should work, you know, for people that are serious in the language. But for but, lazy people such as me, she, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a big stumbling block. Yeah, of course. I, I remember even one of my, my, my uh, you know, one of my colleagues, he's also a Molana now, but I mean, he used to be just a friend, but then he, mm. at later years also studied. He used to always tell me, you know, I can't understand you guys. Mm. You studied overseas, mm. you know Arabic. How come when you meet each other, you don't speak Arabic? Mm. Like he was speaking like me and Shekhar Riyad. Okay, right. Shekhar Riyad does speak Arabic a lot to me and to everybody else. He loves the language also. Right. You know, so he, it's maybe a bad example. 
maybe myself and uh, another sheikh that studied with me. Why don't you speak Arabic? You know, nah. why why would you speak English to each other yeah. if you are able to speak Arabic? No, nah. it's just bad habit. You see, yeah. I mean, we just prefer to be comfortable to speak English. Yes. I mean, even in my home, I, I'm actually quite. Uh, I feel now, but quite uh, regretful that I never spoke with my kids and stuff like no. that. Because we actually made my wife and I said to each other, we said to each other, you know, when we have kids, inshallah, we'd like to speak Arabic to them. Hmm. But I don't know, when it actually happened, we, we yeah. just we just didn't come to that point where we, because it's a, like, it's not our mother tongue. No. And it's like, uh, you have to put in an effort to do it. That I think that's the big you thing. Know. Like, uh, we will, as, as in San, with the nafs, we will always look for the, the shortest path. And the shortest path to getting your child to eat their food is to say, eat your food. Yeah. <laughs> like you're still going to come formulate a nice way to say mm. it in Arabic, put it in the proper mu'annath form for my daughter now and then yeah. say it. So when there's an easy way out, then unfortunately we tend to take it. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I always, I've got a personal inhibition. Like I believe that I can understand everything in a conversation. Like mia fin mia. Obviously there's sometimes one or two words that you don't get. Walilah alhamd. But ask me to keep up with that conversation at the same pace. Mm. And it's, it's, it's such a daunting task because mm. I feel like I'm supposed to, mm. but I know that I can't. Mm. Unless I sort of uh, premeditate what I'm going to say mm. and so on, figure out the words. So now what I'm doing is with my daughter, I'm, I'm trying to, to sort of uh, introduce it in a, in, a, in a fabricated way, so to speak. I've, I've got uh, kids' books in Arabic. And then we've got like vocabs in Arabic and um, I try to use basic communication things like phrases at the time because I'm, I'm not doing the full thing, you know, like uh, for example, Mullah Muhammad Ka, he just speaks to, I know with Ahmad and, uh, and Hamza, he just from the very beginning, he spoke to them in Arabic. I don't know about the other kids. Um, so I didn't do that. So for me, uh, this is now my way of sort of making up for it. But what, what other type of, of practical tips for not the kids now, but for us as uh, students of Dean didn't study in an Arabic country, um, we find ourselves in those circles now more and more. I'm a tell Sheikh after this about something that, that they threw me into the deep end with now. But be that as it may, it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, even among friends, like you can get friends together and stuff like that. Is there anything that sort of worked uh, for Sheikh? Just a... Uh, mm. Yeah, I think it's all it's all your mindset that that needs to be uh, sort of uh, geared and focused towards that. Mm. Uh, the student must have that urge, man. Mm. Must have that urgency mm. to want to actually speak. Uh, but before I come there, I, I just want to say something on people that understand the language but can't actually speak. Tamam. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't like say they don't know Arabic or frown upon them or stuff like that. Mm. Because I mean, you can. It is possible for you. Like the Darul Ulum systems and so on, they are able to read a book, for example, mm. they can translate and so on, but they won't be able to speak because no. they've never really practiced it. Mm. So I don't look down upon them because that is what they had an objective to do and they, no. they alhamdulillah, they achieved that well, mm. you know? And I feel that it's a great achievement mm. if you can pick up any kitab and actually read it and actually uh, make sense of it. Alhamdulillah, I think it's a great achievement. No. You know? So students shouldn't feel also. Now, I think it's a psychological thing mm. because they can't speak. They always feel inferior, mm. you know? So uh, I want to say to students like that, don't feel inferior mm. because you've achieved a lot, you know, to, to be able to read a, a kitab. Mm. But to satisfy that inferiority, you will have to work on it by yourself, you know? Mm. You have to have that urgency no. to want to speak. And yes, I think uh, 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 psychologically, it's always like, 
you always feel like uh, worried that you're going to speak wrong or mm. you're going to not say sound, the thing. You're going to sound silly yeah. or people are going to laugh at you and mm. stuff. Now, I think you have to sort of overcome that kind of barrier, man, because yeah. uh, any person learning any language is going to stutter. It's Damn normal, man. you know. And even if you're going to look for words and speak English words in between and whatever, that's also normal. Mm. But that doesn't mean that you should leave it off mm. or you should give up, mm. you know. Uh, you should, and I think we we're living in such a time that there is actually much more opportunity now. I mean, we've yeah. got much more foreigners living here mm. than before. Mm. Like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we didn't see as many Egyptians like you see now. Of course. I even, mean, we've even, got... Even fellow students of Dean, there's, there's so many Even now. people that study with you. Mm. I mean, people that come from other countries and so on. So I think it's a matter of you just, you know, uh, working on yourself and mm. actually... Making it a priority. Making it. And I think my friend that suggested that, you know, that when ulama and people come together, they should speak Arabic. Mm. I, I feel... It's a good suggestion, you know. No. Why not speak Arabic? Because, no. I mean, if you can do it, you can encourage other people to do it. No. And uh, it could then become a, a, a grounds for, for, for improvement, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, so that is the spoken side of things. When uh, The other suggestion that one could make is, of course, that you should just go over, you know, to, to the Middle East mm. and go and stay there for six months. Mm. That's all you need. Mm. You know, a person who studied already all the Nahaw and Sarf and all of that. It's not, just practice, basically. You're not going to take a long time to adapt no. to the language, you know. And and people should maybe think in those terms. Mm. You don't have to like spend years and years to become proficient in, in speaking Arabic. Mm. All that you need yourself to do is to immerse yourself, to mm. go there. Because you see Arabic, you hear Arabic, you mm. speak Arabic, everything around you is Arabic. So inshallah, I think six months to a year I can, maximum. I, I can attest to, to the fact that when I come home from Hajj, and normally with the Hajj, I was I was working, so it was seven weeks at the time. You come home, then I feel like, oh, my Arabic is honed in because you were using it consistently for like seven weeks straight. Uh, then you come home, you don't use it again. You forget some of the things that you picked up, some of the, the phrases that you've learned. Because every time you, you, you submerge yourself more for, for somebody who didn't do so previously on the long term, you kind of pick up on new phrases and that's that's the important thing because you can read a kitab and you might know that uh, this word means old. So Qadim, for example, means old. But it's not Qadim is not going to work in a certain type of context in a conversation. It's the wrong word. It may have the, the right meaning in English, but it doesn't have the same meaning in Arabic because there's nuances. Mm. So so every time you 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 sort of re-emerge yourself, you pick up on more of these. So, oh, okay, they don't use that word, they use mm. that word. Mm. And then you, you also kind of figure out that's why they do it as such. Because this is conversational, that is more classical, that's more fuscha, that's a, a specific nuance of meaning that is used within that context only. Uh, another example is like time. I think I possibly made this mistake, I can't remember, but uh, so I watch the time and say, Mal uh, Asr, <laughs> you know? Mm. Which which is a literal translation. It's a really. literal translation. What is the uh, what is the next the next phase in the this Arabic discovery was that uh, it was was Egypt somewhat different to Syria in that regard? Yeah, I spent uh, only one year in Egypt uh, because of my college that I came out of in Syria. They had this understanding, you know, this uh, what you call an MOU really no. uh, between our college and uh, the Al Azhar. Mm. So when we finished at our college, you can go straight into the final year of Al-Azhar. You, mm. know, you didn't have to spend all the, all the, all the years. You go straight into final year. So uh, in Egypt, uh, I must say, I mean, when I came there, it was very different. Mm. I've been to Egypt many times before, like traveling just, you know, um, uh, via Egypt to Syria, uh, spending some days there and then moving on. But to actually live in Egypt now, 
So I found, uh, you know, the two systems being quite different, you know, in many aspects. Mm. Um, one of the things that was kind of disappointing for me at the beginning was that the environment and the attachment between student and teacher and that kind of thing, I found it in, in Syria to be much more sort of uh, visible right. than in Egypt, you know, because Al-Azhar is a big university. You sort of go to your lecture and then you go home. The teacher might not know who you are mm. uh, and so on. There wasn't that sort of uh, attachment, you know, between uh, or connection between student and teacher. But that was, of course, on the Al-Azhar University itself. Mm -hmm. You can, of course, get that when you study privately with people, studying the, uh, the Masjid of Al-Azhar and so on. Um, but essentially, I mean, I, I spent only that year there and for that year that I was there, I didn't really attend class as much in terms of the Al-Azhar. Uh, but I, I, I formally just went to write the examinations. So I spent then some, uh, most of my time, you know, doing some private studies. So I attended some lectures of Sheikh uh, Taha Rayyan in the Al-Azhar, mm. you know, who passed away a few years ago, great mm -hmm. Maliki scholar, scholar of, of Al-Azhar. Mm. I sat in some of the lectures of Sheikh Ali Jumu'ah, the former mufti of of Egypt as well. Um, yeah, so some some lectures, you know, that I attended. But uh, I think, yeah, my, my years in Syria was for me much more, sort of had a much greater effect on me. Mm you know, than the, the short while that I spent. Because, of course, it was a short while. Mm. So I didn't really get the chance to to uh, fully explore, mm. you know, what Egypt has got to offer. Mm. Um, my brother, on the other hand, for example, that was he was with me for that year. So Alhamdulillah, he again, Egypt was, was like a heaven for him, you know, because he right. was into Quran and Egypt is land of the Qiraat and Quran and Qurra and so on. So Alhamdulillah, from that aspect, I think Egypt was great. Um, and the life conditions, just the living conditions of Egypt is so much different to Syria also. Mm. You know, Syria is a very sort of uh, much more laid back, much right. more sort of calm and not as busy. But if you walk in Cairo, it's so busy, you know, mm. the streets are buzzing and everything is uh, full, all places are full and so on. But I think we, we, we sort of had to just adapt to that, you know. Um, but there's a couple of things that stand out for me in Egypt, you know, that I really uh, sort of uh, remember. One of the things is the love that people have for Quran generally. Mm. I didn't see that in Syria or anywhere else. Anywhere else, you'll find people like standing in the bus, for example, and it's a normal scene every day. People standing with a small Quran, you know, reciting. Mm. Ordinary people. It's a, it's a fantastic sight. To and that old. is something that you you don't forget easily, man, mm. because it's you don't see it in other countries. Mm. So the love that the Egyptians have for Quran. The other thing is, I mean, you can drive with somebody like a taxi driver, which is an ordinary person, mm. and this person he might be a graduate of Al Azhar, you mm. know. He mm. might speak to you yeah. and you may have a very good conversation with him. He may recite to you and you will be blown away, you know, with this person's recitation. In terms of the Arabic, uh, I must say, you know, th this is a, a very bad thing uh, as for, far as speaking Arabic is concerned. Mm. So I was all the years in Syria uh, speaking. So now the, the question of dialect versus fusha. No. This is a massive question because students like find this troublesome. Man. Mm. How do you how do you navigate this? Because you... you you, you want to uh, speak Fusha because you know that is the only thing that's going to help you when you come back. Right. But at the same time, you also want to live normally there, man. Yes. So what do you do, you know? So my approach in Syria was, look, as much as possible with ourselves as foreigners, we try to speak Fusha. Mm. With our teachers, we speak Fusha and so on. Like in the uh, academic environment and so on, we try to speak Fusha, you know? But I also believe it's useful for you to live, man, to go and live out there. And actually, because the, the problem is, 
if you only speak Fusha, even mm. like to the taxi driver, mm. it puts you sometimes in difficult situations, man. Because now they know you're foreign and now they want to try stuff with you and, and like that. And sometimes there can even be misunderstandings because you don't know what they're saying. Yes. And they don't know what you say because <laughs> you want to speak like book Arabic. Yeah. They want, they speaking their language. So my approach was always for us as students that study overseas, I think like if I should put it percentage wise, I would say 70% of your effort should be in, in Fosca mm. because that is going to help you when you come back home that you can sp- communicate to other students. Because remember the, the dialect also is different from country to country. Mm. So the Syrian dialect is very different to the Egyptian, yeah. very different to the Saudi, very different to the Yemeni. So you don't want to uh, spend all your time learning that and then when you come home you can't speak to the Egyptian student anyway because his right. dialect is different. You know. Right. But the thing that joins or that connects all of you is the Fusha. So 70% Fusha and 30% at least just to right. get along, you know. So when I came to Egypt, so I had, I mean, I was speaking quite well the Syrian dialect as right. well. People used to call me sometimes, some of the, the other students just to come sort of uh, settle disputes, you know, between them and the, the landlord right. and stuff. Because I, I, my wife and I both just had an, a sort of a ability, you know, Mashallah. to speak the, the Syrian slang. Even my wife could speak it quite fluently. Mashallah. And so, uh, so when I came to Egypt, it's quite strange just for that year or just less than a year that I was there, I forgot everything of the Syrian dialect because right. now you're into, into the Egyptian dialect right. and very quickly you forget, you know, everything that you've done for the last five years as far as speaking is concerned. And then you go into the, uh, the, the, we go into the Egyptian slang. Yeah. But what I want to caution students is, especially those studying in Egypt, the Egyptian slang is very strong. It's mm. very overpowering. Mm. And unfortunately, I find a lot of students that do study in Egypt, they only speak slang. Mm. You know, they don't make it the effort to speak proper Arabic with one another. Mm. And I think this is also a major difference between Syria and Egypt. You won't find a teacher in Syria give a class where he speaks like Amiya or like speak dialect. He will always speak Fusha. Right. Because it's an academic environment. And the person that comes to mind that everybody knows about is Sheikh Ramadan al-Bouti, for example. Mm. I mean, he used to speak like his lectures became his books. Mm. Didn't have to publish anything because it was so eloquent. They should take his works just so and just publish it. Maybe just he would maybe edit some stuff and that would be a book, you know. Now, most teachers in Syria are like that. When they speak to you in class, it will be Fusha. Mm. I mean, I can, I, I still got tapes, you know, recordings of some of my lectures at college. I mean, if you listen to it, it's like a lecture that was prepared for like a khutbah, man. Ajib. The type of Arabic and the balagha and the... The, 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 the vocab and the nahu on its place and all of that, man. Mm. And unfortunately in Egypt, I didn't find that. You know, even the lecturers, they speak Amir, mm. you know, they speak dialect. There might be some exceptions, but mm. most of them, they don't speak like proper. So I think students have a bigger task right. studying in Egypt or going for that few months to also then concentrate on Fusha and make it a point amongst themselves, you know, to force themselves to also speak like proper, proper Arabic, you know. Yeah. So that you don't get caught up in, in only the in only the the dialect, no. which, which could become a problem. Sheikh, that uh, Egyptian dialect is on another level. Yeah. Well, I, when I got there, uh, I just went for a short while with uh, my teachers and so on. We went to the book fair, and then um, the first thing I heard was somebody coming to me saying, "And Amile," mm. and I got the shock of my life. <laughs> I, I well, I looked at him. With mm. confusion on my face, thinking mm. like, "What are you saying?" Mm. And he repeated himself. Doesn't sound times. like Arabic. Yes, and then and then I told him, "Look, and then he he was now getting angry now at this point because they got a short temper. Mm. So he was explaining to me, 
but mashallah, he actually took the time to explain to me that he's saying kefahaluk. <laughs> and then he explained how he got to that mm. as well. So I was like, okay, this is this is a bit disappointing because I'm now a third year student. Mm. I've got some ability. I was hoping to use Arabic here, but it's not working so like because this dialect is on is on another level. And then uh, then another incident was when we were driving to uh, the Jami of Amr ibn al-As. And I was in the same taxi as the late Malata, rahimahullah. And then the taxi driver was asking him about a masala. And I was sitting in the back, Malata was sitting in the front. And this guy is explaining, it's a long explanation. But basically what he's asking was about jam fil hadar. You know, can he do it? Because there's mm. sometimes... We, work or yeah, especially busy, with the yeah. taxi, he can't mm. get out and so. So he spoke for a long time. Malata then answered him. When we got out of the taxi, Malata asked me, um, "Did you understand what he just said?" Mm -hmm. Now I said, "I understood about a quarter of what he just said." Now Malata tells me, "I understood about half of what he just said." Now, <laughs> so it, it's very, it's very mm. uh, complex. But uh, then the environment also, Subhanallah. Like I envy people who can be in such an environment of Quran. Mm. It's it's breathtaking. Mm. Really, it it will it you can it can move you to tears when you see um, what we would term the ordinary people with whether it's a street sweeper mm. or bigger in the tunnel reciting mm. Quran. You know, it, it's just profound. Uh, but may Allah Subhanahu wa Taala make all our lives and our homes and our environments um, at least something like that where we Amen. live and breathe Quran, Ya Rabb. Um, Sheikh, we we can we can uh, sort of close off the discussion, move towards closing off the discussion, but there's an important question that, that I would like to ask about um, Arabic at universities, because she has now been exposed to that as well. Is it worthwhile for a student um, who would like to learn Arabic to pursue the university route as his first option? Mm. You know, as uh, what, what would you advise in that regard? Yeah, look, in terms of the, uh, you know, tertiary uh, teaching of Arabic on a tertiary level, uh, again, it, it boils down down to what the student actually wants to achieve mm. by learning Arabic. Mm. You know, if it's a student that's uh, going to pursue Islamic studies, for example, I would say certainly not, because I mean, Islamic studies and the Arabic that is required for that is a very specific kind of vocabulary. It's a very specific type of uh, uh, you know mindset also that mm. you have to carry with you while studying the language. Uh, the University of Arabic, uh, now especially where, I, where I'm teaching now at UCT, it's more modern Arabic, modern standard Arabic. It's geared towards just introducing the language to the student. Uh, it's It has no religious vocabulary, for example, mm. right? Um, again, uh, speaking versus reading and grammar and all of that, because there's no uh, proper environment to really practice the language much, mm. I would say only maybe 20% is focused on speaking and the rest is on learning a basic grammar, learning mm. some reading and so on. And you must remember also at university level, um, uh, you might find students that come there that because it's a language course, so they might come there with absolutely nothing. Mm. And I teach students like that. Mm. I teach a student that don't even know Alif Bata. Sure. Like a non-Muslim student, for example. Mm. And, and there's some reflections that I have around this in terms of, you know, um, because it's, it's, it's a university program, the pace is quite fast. Mm. So I have to teach, for example, within the span of three weeks to a month, I have to teach that new student how to read Arabic, right? Like all the letters, mm -hmm. how to write Arabic, sure. right? And also how to identify, you know, letters, how it is written together, uh, um, single or at the Thank beginning. You. 
So uh, just to give you an example, the, the type of pace uh, that I have to apply in order to obviously, because you have to go through the syllabus and so on. No. So uh, day one, for example, I introduce them to obviously the language and um, just a sort of historical background and where, where in the world they speak. So, so just a kind of a overview mm. of uh, Arabic and where it is spoken and so on. Then I go into the alphabet straight away. Mm. In lesson one already, I introduce to them certain letters. So I don't follow the Alif Bata system because now what I do is I want to introduce to them first letters that they are familiar with in terms of pronunciation. Oh, okay. Right? So the Ayn and Saad and those things will come right at the end. Right. Right? So I choose Ba, for example, because Ba is a B. It's a normal B. And also the shape of the Ba, it resembles the shape of many other letters. Right. So I can do a lot of things in one. So what I do is I write the Ba on the board. Right, so this is the bar when it's alone, the dot underneath, it's equivalent to a B in English, right? This is how you write a bar uh, when it stands alone. This is how you write it when it comes at the beginning, mm. the middle and the end. So they get that all in one, right? Then in that same lesson, I have to also now immediately introduce to them the harakat on that bar. Sure. So we don't do like the whole alphabet and come back to the harakat. Yeah, yeah. There's no time for that. Uh. So immediately I then showed them this is the bar. If you put this little thing on top of the bar, it gives a sound to it. So now it becomes ba. If you put it underneath, it becomes b. If you put the dhamma, it becomes bu. Right? So all of that imagine in one lesson. Mm. And then uh, to add to their troubles, I now tell them now that's the bar. Now I'm going to show you some other letters that you are familiar with in terms of pronunciation, but they are just written slightly different. Mm. So the bar shape, you have the ta also, you mm. have the tha, mm. and you have the noon. So all of that is taught in one lesson. Sure. So we basically escalate everything, right? So within three weeks, they would have gone through the whole alphabet like that. And it's strange that some of them actually survive, you know? Well, Which, on, on what percentage, if I may ask? Yeah, look, the non-Muslim students, I would say like, uh, firstly, in terms of registration, you, you'll only find a, sh a small percentage of non-Muslims. Hmm. Uh, out of that small percentage, I would say maybe, you know, I would say half of them would probably succeed, mm. you know, in finishing the course. Sure. And the other half would, would probably fail or drop out. Mm. It's but still, I mean, it's a big percentage. Yeah, doable. It's mm. doable, you know. Mm. So this, this brings me to what we are doing. Sometimes we take so long to teach our yes. kids, you know, to yes. read. And we take years for them to even like to read a sentence, man. No. So we, we, I think we should also like rethink this, man. Mm. Isn't there a quicker way of doing this, you know? Because we like follow the Alif Bata system, for example. Right. Why not follow the system of saying, look, let's introduce letters as kids speak them, you know, that mm. is easy for them to say, mm. leave the difficult ones for later. Mm. I mean, we can think of no. certain ways of, but I think we, we like kind of stuck in our system, mm. you know, mm. we have to go through the madrasa system, which I mean, I'm not criticizing that. No, no, no. It has been working and so on. But, but, but uh, those things, it's important like to, to also know that some things are not set in, in stone. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And one needs to sometimes improvise and, and think of new methods, you know. Mm. And just coming back to your question then, so depends what student you are mm. that is going to university. So I find a lot of the Muslim students that do come are students that are doing other courses and they want to do also Arabic because they know it's important for their deen and for Quran and so on, you know. So for that kind of student, I think that kind of course is, is wonderful. Mm. Or a student that want to actually maybe teach Arabic one day only as a language, you know, mm. they don't know to do anything else. Mm. They want to become Arabic teachers maybe on primary school or high school level. Then that could be a course for them. But uh, for the uh, average dean student, you know, I don't think a course like that, uh, it, it could help. It could be like an introduction. But he, obviously, you know, the student will have to be geared to something more specific. Uh, like the 
uh, other colleges are doing, you know, more Quranic approach and going through translations and uh, building a vocabulary that is really one of, uh, you know, that is going to help the student with Islamic texts and stuff mm. like that. Mm. All the texts that we do are all modern texts, you know. Mm. We speak about the uh, River Nile and we speak about traveling and we speak about the Mat'am, for example, and that kind of thing. Mm. So it's basically Arabic that uh, you're going to use every day uh, that you can perhaps uh, converse with and that you can perhaps read a simple newspaper with. Mm. That is the type of Arabic that we teach. at. But of course, as it uh, that's level one and two. But as we go on, obviously it does escalate a bit in terms of the level that we offer. Right. So students that come in third year, mm. for example, I teach third year level as well. Uh, so there I've got students and most students that come to third year are Muslim students. Okay. So what I introduce to them in third year is, is actually what we call, uh, you know, classical religious texts. Okay. Because that's part of Arabic, you know. Right. You right. can't really study Arabic if you didn't study Quran. Of course. And you can't really study Arabic if you didn't do some Hadith, you know. Right. So in my third year course, I actually teach them Quran and Hadith. Nice. You know, and it's like sort of nice for them because at least they, 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 they're killing two birds with one stone, you know. Yes. Do a bit of Arabic, but they also touch on some Islamic things that yes. they didn't, that they missed out on maybe in the last few years and so on. Nice. And students really enjoy it, you know, to, to at least be exposed. So giving them some hadith of Arba'un and Nawawiyah, giving some text from the Quran, you know, selected text mm. with some tafsir with it and introduce some balagha aspects to it because they've right. done now some nahu and so on. So at third year level, we give them some little bit of balagha, you know, a little bit of the deeper meanings and, um, you know, the, the the decorations in the Quran, the rhyme schemes and, right. and stuff like that. And they kind of enjoy that, that that uh, you know, sort of concluding cause. Mm. They conclude, obviously, with that cause when, they, sure. when they exit the, the Arabic. Sheikh, is there anything you'd like to conclude with before yeah. we wrap up? Yeah, no, I think I've gone haywire with this discussion. I mean, it's all over the place. No, but, absolutely uh, <laughs> not. I think this, in actual fact, I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, this was actually a very structured discussion because yeah. uh, the focus remained on Arabic. Uh, I personally found a lot of benefit in, and I think also anybody who listens to it, uh, because, you know, like they say, uh, don't just learn from your own mistakes, so to speak. Learn from the mistakes of others mm. as well. But not that you're learning from Sheikh's mistakes, so to speak, but you experience in that sense uh, is very much a precious experience it's mm. not something easily attainable um, and, I, and I really appreciate the the structure it was like have a good environment that would lead to a thirst for something good and then once you have that in place when the person is self-motivated then the world is the oyster as far as you know what can quench that thirst is concerned yeah and I think I mean with the uh, technology that we have nowadays and media and so on there's, there's so much possibilities, man. You mm. know, so many possibilities. Mm. I mean, YouTube and all these things. Mm. You can listen to the news in Arabic. You can just, you know, can surf on the internet and there's so many Arabic causes that mm. you can take, you know, online. And, mm. and I think, you know, we should uh, tap into these resources. Man, no, absolutely. And not limit ourselves and not no. think like you must formally go study and you can do it, you know. Mm. Uh, although you're going, to, you're going to at some point need a teacher. Yes. Clearly. I mean, you are going to need a teacher. But it doesn't stop you from at least doing something, you know. Right. Because every right. little bit helps, man. Of course. Of and course. that is a, perhaps a message that I will give you. You know, every little bit helps. Don't mm. think that, like if you're doing something small now, with regards to Arabic or Quran or whatever, in the long run, it's going to help you somewhere. Mm. Wherever you go, you know, whatever you're going to do. I remember when coming in Syria and all of that, the little bit of stuff that I knew, man, mm. that was the springboard for me, you know. I could sure. rely on that to actually sort of push me in, in, in directions, you know, that I wanted to go into. 
without that background, I would have most probably spent much more time, you know, doing mm. the basics and not get, uh, you know, the other things that I really wanted to get. Mm. Again, uh, it was wonderful. I hope we can do it again sometime, inshallah yeah. ta'ala. Um, Allah bless you and Amen, Amen, inshallah. No, shukran to you for uh, inviting me once again. And it was, I think it was a, it was a unique experience. Alhamdulillah. You know, to speak about things that I don't normally speak about and reflect about. Alhamdulillah. So inshallah, hopefully it, uh, as I said, it will have some kind of benefit to us. No, absolutely, to absolutely. To I mean, I've benefited tremendously. Maybe listen to it. Absolutely. I actually want to say to, to, to my fellow students of Deen um, that you should, you should try and listen to, to scholars also. Like, there's a lot of benefit in listening to scholars, especially the Syrian scholars, because they're meticulous about the, the Arab, like they pronounce, even Sheikh Dr. Muhammad Hassan Hitu, up until now, he pronounces every... All the harakat. All the harakat. Because mm. it's not natural to do that. I don't think it's natural mm. to do that. Normally, when you speak, you just leave out the last harakat. Mm. It's, it flows better. But no, every harakat, he says... And then I also found two teachers to be very beneficial to listen to the actually teachers of Ilmul Kalam it's Dr. Uh, Hamza Bakari and uh, Dr. Ali Omari mm. both of them they are so crisp in the in the in the um mm. in the articulation of Arabic and they are clear they're teaching very complex sciences but I think even a novice a beginner student would be able to take something away from from just listening and I think there's a lot of benefit in that so yeah um, most definitely and yeah. I would say you know my beginning was with Shah Abdul Hamid Kish. Allah. And I still believe he, he can still serve that purpose, oh, you know. Absolutely. Even even up until now, you know. No. To listen to his lectures as well. Because no. he's got a very powerful way of speaking, but also very, very profound, you mm. know. All the uh, pronunciations and everything on its mm. place, you know. Mm. So and also uh, very inspiring. And very inspiring if you can understand the message behind it. That's a, you know, added plus, definitely, definitely. تقبل الله منا ومنكم جزاكم الله خيرا شيخ في امان الله الكريم انتم نيكست تايم ان شاء الله شكرا جزيلا صلى الله على سيدنا محمد سبحان الله وبحمده سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وعليكم السلام ورحمه الله وبركاته